For podcasts, articles, and more, find us on NewstalkSTL.com. On fire. This is Mark McCloskey on fire. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark McCloskey, Mark McCloskey on fire. We start every day with a with the same kind of Critique of the world, that is, that if you believe a single word that the mainstream media or the government tells you, you need to have your head examined because every single thing you're told in the world today is a lie. And I don't care whether you're listening to MSNBC or Fox for that matter. You you know, if you believe the media, then they're going to con you into believing anything. And that's the destruction of our freedom and destruction of our country and destruction of our heritage. But, you know, one of the narratives that they've been building now well, gosh, all the way back to 2016 is Russia, Russia, Russia. We have to hate Russia. Now the the uh, the mantra is hate Russia, give money to Ukraine. Hate Russia, give money to Ukraine. And the uh, current narrative is this Alexei Navalny who uh, uh, dies in a Russian prison camp, apparently from a from a uh, uh, embolus, a blood clot. But anyway, he was a murder victim of Vladimir Putin, this evil man that keeps political prisoners and has political prisoners held under unethical and immoral conditions and then causes their death. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if uh, you don't believe that we have political prisoners in this country, if you don't believe that they're kept under inhumane circumstances, if you don't believe that they're denied proper medical care or denied their lives in jail on completely political claims, then you've not been paying attention since January the 20th of 2021. We have with us today one of those political prisoners, a guy whose story you need to know, a guy who's going to tell you what it's actually like to be a political prisoner in the United States of America in 2022, 2023, 2024, and that's Mr. Tim Hale. Tim, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you, Mark. appreciate you having me on. Well, it's, it, it's, it's our place. You know, we've, we've had a number of, of J6ers on, and uh, we, we just have to keep letting the world know that uh, the United States – uh, is uh, is not the country it was when I grew up. You're, you're a relatively young man, but this was a free country when I grew up, and it sure as heck isn't now. Tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, well, I'm from New Jersey. Um, I spent about 12 years serving the DOD in two different branches in one way or another. Uh, served in the U.S. Army, sergeants, and for the Navy, I was a naval contractor. Um, so I pretty much dedicated a decent part of my adult life to public service. Um, so there's not much more to that. I was a union rep as well. So I'm not exactly a partisan person. I was a Trump supporter, independent, not really a Republican partisan. But I did believe in the message of President Trump and the America First message. So... I went down to the Capitol January 6th. I don't know if you want to get just into my story at the Capitol, what happened in general at the Capitol, the D.C. jail. There's a lot of different avenues to go down. Well, let's, let's, uh, just, let's just start, first of all, because the media will tell us that this was an insurrection and it was a organized plan to overthrow the government and to, uh, to keep Donald Trump in, in the presidency and, and 
the destroy the genuine and legitimate election of uh, of Joe Biden to the presidency. So tell me, what what was your motivation in going there on January sixth? I just went there to hear a speech. I was dressed similar to what, how I am right now. I went down in a suit and tie. I went out the night before to men's warehouse. I got some new dress shoes. They hurt like hell. <laughs> um, you know, it's, I worked overnights, actually. I said I was a naval contractor. At the time, I was working overnights. So as soon as I got off my shift, I was putting my suit on and racing down the road, you know, blasting down in my truck to get to D.C. in time because I didn't want to be late. And so I get to the ellipse and, you know, it's, it's a speech. You know, there's just people hanging out at the ellipse, that area, you know, um, down the road from the Capitol. And everybody's chilling. And it's just interesting because, like, the idea that everybody went there with some plan to disrupt the vote count or to fight cops or to topple the government is insane. And, you know, what they did with a lot of people like me is they detained us without bail. They withheld evidence. They didn't let the people see. They're still withholding a lot of evidence. I just heard, like, right before this, I think it was uh, Representative Louderbelt, they said they're going to finally give us, like, 5,000 hours of video that they've been withholding they're busy blurring the faces of the feds in the crowd but whatever yeah Yeah. but even stuff off of my phone you know i there they still haven't returned all my property that would show some exculpatory stuff but i was able to get some video and it shows right off of my phone you can actually hear someone i'm recording the, the speech and there's someone right next to me saying there's some kind of march going on so the idea that everybody just left before trump was even done talking to go knock over barriers is insane. Well, let me, let me, the let's, 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 let's happen a half hour before I got there. Well, let's back so, up a little bit. When, when you're coming down from New Jersey to, uh, to DC, since this, since this was according to the, to the mainstream media, a uh, organized insurrection, I assume you brought all kinds of weapons, whether you had automatic rifles and grenades and all that kind of stuff, right? Only, only the invisible kind. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. It's insane. And, Look, I'll say there were some interesting characters that day, but nobody used a firearm inside the Capitol. There was a guy I was in jail with. His name is Guy Reffitt. He's accused. Well, they convicted him for supposedly having a gun in a holster. He had whatever. He never brandished it and it was never fired. There's one recent, like, I think it was uh, Derek Evans. He's a January 6th defendant. He's running for office now. Yeah, he's been a guest of the show a couple of times. He showed the he showed a video of some dude firing off a gun that no one's really talked about for three years. And you're like, well, if that's the case, armed insurrection, that narrative, why wouldn't that be all over the TV for three years? Yeah. And it's not because that dude's probably a fed. Yeah. Like his, he, had a, he had a hashtag that called him the cowpoke or whatever. But his name is public. He actually was involved in a stabbing a little while ago, I think out in Utah. And they know who he is. Right. And when you watch him at, on video at the Capitol, he's on video agitating. He's wearing a costume. He's got a backpack under his jacket. He's, a, he's an agitator or whatever. But he's not charged for three years. He's publicly identified. Yeah. What's the deal? Yeah, how about, how about Ray Epps, for example? I assume he was sharing a cell with you. Yeah, no, not exactly. Yeah. Some of his, some of his employees were, cause, and this is what people need to understand, Ray Epps is one guy. There was an army of people working with him. And I'm not saying everybody who was like within arm reach of him was working with him, but 
in the jail, I'd say about a third of the people there were Antifa or cooperating witnesses. There were people who admitted they went to the Capitol to actually get out of trouble from the year before. There's a guy who got caught in a drug conspiracy, according to his own co-defendant. And so he was there in a costume to he was basically turned out by the feds to promote the insurrection narrative. And these two co-defendants were actually the first defendants to have that 18 U.S.C. 1512 charge upheld in federal court. So the first defendants to have the 1512 upheld in federal court were federal informants. And that very charge, that obstruction charge is being used against President Trump. Yeah. What are the odds? Yeah. Well, let's, so, let's, let's back up then. Uh, tell, us, tell us what you yourself did after you uh, left the ellipse. After I left the ellipse, I basically meandered down. I think it was Constitution Ave. Uh, there's a point where I stopped, uh, you know, to groove along with the YMCA song because there were speakers all along. So you could actually listen to Trump's speech and you could listen to music and stuff like that. And I have video. It shows people were just chilling. There was no race to get to the Capitol and breach stuff. Most people were walking totally calmly and peacefully. You would never suspect that they were going to a riot. And. You know, so that's why they ignore the fact that Trump said we're going to go to the Capitol to peacefully protest. They want you to say, oh, you got to fight like hell. You got to fight like hell. Or you're not going to have a country. It's like, well, that's kind of out of context, isn't it? And so most people get there and it's still chill. There are agitators, but they're specifically along these bike racks that were part of this perimeter the cops set up. And so if you're me or the average person there, you see an ocean of people because barriers were knocked over, which allowed thousands of people to pour in unsuspectingly. And they're singing God Bless America. I have on my phone, they're singing, my home, sweet home, y'all. The, the national anthem, patriotic songs, as far as you can hear. And so people are chanting USA, USA, and I'm supposed to believe that's an insurrection. It's like, I've never heard of an insurrection where people are so adamant about how much they love their country. So... So that's not what ends up happening is that the cops are reacting to agitators in the crowd and some of the cops are just doing their job. If you watch the body cameras of the MPD, because the Capitol PD don't really have body cams, a lot of the Metro PD were way out of control. And so what ends up happening is instead of targeting specific agitators, they unload flashbangs, spray, and they're just destroying a peaceful crowd. And so psychologically, this is really getting the adrenaline pumping for the majority of people there who are just normal people. There's no segregation in the mind between that's an agitator, that might be Antifa, this is a Fed in a costume, and we're normal people. And so there's this there's a snowball effect. Yeah. Agitator attacks cops, cops attack the crowd, more people get pissed off, they attack the cops, the cops keep attacking. Yeah. And it cre- and it's just this feedback loop. Yeah. Did, did, and it's, did, it's not as simple as good and bad. Yeah. Not all the cops were bad, not all the protesters were good. Yeah. Not all the cops were good, not all the protesters were bad. And there's a lot of nuance here, but that's why they have this simplified insurrection narrative and then the simplified counter narrative of we're all peaceful Trump supporters who were attacked by cops. I've watched this develop while I was in jail. Certain people have been doing interviews for three years straight from solitary confinement. A lot of these guys are actually 
agitators who are trying to control the narrative so they can come out to a hero's welcome like this Caesar. Yeah. Well, let me, let me, let me ask you some specifics here because I want to get you to talk about what life was like in, uh, in jail. But did you, did you break anything? No. Did you steal anything? anything? I didn't steal anything. I didn't assault anybody. I used foul language because I was mad. And I'm open about that. Yeah. But for the most part, I wandered around. I took selfies with a flag in the crypt because someone put a Trump flag in a statue's hand. It was pretty funny. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Well, I danced in the, the Capitol Visitor Center. And, but anytime I ever got into action, it was to, you know, try to help someone who was on the ground who I thought was injured. Yeah. You know. So what, what, what were you eventually charged with and what, you, what were you convicted of? I was initially charged with, like, some nonsense misdemeanors. But after they indicted me, I ended up getting that ridiculous obstruction charge that really goes back to the Enron scandal and destroying documents. And then they charged me with civil disorder. But then they actually, right before my trial, they superseded my indictment and they removed the civil disorder. And so really, obstruction is my only felony charge now. So if the Supreme Court ends up tossing that, I'm no longer a felon. Yep. So, so what, was the, what was your sentence? My sentence was four years. So I got four years essentially for walking in the Capitol building. They made up some other reasons, but it was a foregone conclusion. Yeah. No, but before, no. my trial, before my trial, there were informants in the jail who were writing hit pieces about me for NPR. Yeah. The government was trying to claim I was a far-right extremist because of memes and troll videos on my phone. That's what I was going to say. It seems to me, because I've read a lot about your case, that you were mostly you were mostly convicted for having unpopular political opinions as to anything you actually did in the Capitol building. Let me ask you this, because we're kind of running short on time. I understand you spent approximately a year in solitary. It was about a year. Yeah. What's, that, from what's that like? And one. What's that? What's that? Describe your conditions in solitary. Initially, when we were just in solitary for like that first year, we basically ate bologna every day. I'll get that out of the way because all some people want to talk about is how bad the food is. It's jail, but, you know, there was no sunlight. Very rarely did we actually get to go outside in the sun and breathe fresh air. Medical care was basically non-existent. Religious services were not allowed. Access to our attorneys was often denied. Uh, No family visitation. And very frequently they would try to withhold our evidence and stop us from actually being able to view discovery. So for the better part of the first year we were there, we, can't, we couldn't actually look at any evidence. About halfway through the year, they brought these tablets out that we could watch video on through a system called evidence.com, even though it was technically corrupted because it was this Deloitte decision by Chief Justice Howell that said they actually gave the evidence to a third-party contractor, even though they weren't supposed to. There were a lot of due process violations, but the long and short of it is we were treated like terrorists. Even the guards... Before they warmed up to us, because they started to realize we're not what the government said we were, a lot of those guards thought we were all pieces of crap. And so they treated us like terrorists. Some people were shackled like they were, you know, like like they were Hannibal Lecter. So they could go 20 feet down a hallway to a medical visit. And I understand you you were bleeding out of both your ears from ear infections and, and got no treatment whatsoever, lost your hearing? I lost it. I lost some hearing. And I think it was well in my right ear. It was both of them. And it's weird, like one kind of cleared up. But yeah, actually, they couldn't tell me whether I had a bacterial infection or a fungal infection. There are no doctors. Uh, that's something that kind of, you know, I kind of forgot about that right there. 
there's just these nurses or whatever. I actually was recommended by the chief nurse to get a furlough to see an ear, nose and throat doctor, an ENT. And it just, it was not approved. And even when I got to prison in the BOP, the Fort Dix prison would not let me do that either. Um, Eventually it ended up clearing up through other means, but it was not from medical assistance. And they, they, they couldn't even identify what was wrong with me. I was bleeding out of my ear onto my pillow. My pillow, my, well, there was really no pillow. It's actually, we took sheets and we had to turn it into like some, uh, sack. Yeah. But it was covered well, in my, it was covered in blood. In the, in the, in the and line, I got off easy. And yeah. Was a lot worse. It was we, a lot worse that was going on. We've, we've got to wrap it up here, but in the last five seconds, if you've got something to say to the American people about the way you were treated as an American citizen trying to support your president, what would you tell the people of America? I would say if you want to support a lot of the guys who are still languishing in jail and prison, go to patriotfreedomproject.com. You know, you don't have to agree with everything that happened that day, but know that this is a terrible precedent to set for anyone, no matter where you are on the political spectrum. So please support the families. Donate if you can. If not, at least inform yourselves about what's actually going on. Say a prayer. You know, if that 1512 charge gets thrown out, there's a lot of people who might be leaving prison a lot early. There's a lot of people who won't be going to prison at all. Well, Tim, so, we, we've got to, We've got to let you go. I appreciate it. When we've got uh, the uh, president of the Patriot Freedom Project on, Cynthia Hughes, we'll bring you back on again. Thank you very much for your time, and thank you for letting us know what political prisonership is like in the United States of America today. Thank you. Stay a prayer for Trump, too. We sure will. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's uh, Tim Hale. When he was held in solitary confinement for having walked peacefully and patriotically through the Capitol building, he was treated for more than a year in a way which if he had been a dog, his owners would have been put in jail for animal abuse. We'll be right back with another true patriot, Mr. Tom Haviland, and we'll be right back in a minute. Fighting against the New World Order. More Mark McCloskey on fire coming up. For podcasts, articles, and more, find us on NewstalkSTL.com. Mark McCloskey, On Fire. This is Mark McCloskey, On Fire. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark McCloskey, Mark McCloskey, On Fire. You know, uh, everything you hear about everything in the world, as I always say, is a lie. One of the things we were told was that... uh, that uh, COVID was the greatest scourge in the history of the world, but that the vaccine was going to make it all go away. President Biden said that this was a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And yet now we know, a couple of years later, that the vaccine neither prevented you from getting the, the virus or prevented you from spreading the virus, but what it does do is stand a pretty good chance of killing you. And we have on today Mr. Tom Haviland, a retired major from the U.S. Air Force, uh, who I believe was forced out of the service for, or a contractor for the service, for not taking the vaccine. And thank God he didn't, thank God I didn't, because we're still alive and a lot of people are not. Welcome to the program, Mr. Tom Haviland. Thanks, Mark, for having me on again. I'll show the audience again the, the white fibrous clots. They're just one of the side effects we believe are happening because of the vaccines. People have also talked about myocarditis, um, turbo cancers, miscarriages, nerve damage, palsies, all kinds of problems. But if uh, your audience recalls, last time I was on the show, I recently completed a uh, my second worldwide embalmer blood clot survey. 
and it corroborated pretty much the results of last year's survey that we did. Um, uh, over 73% of embalmers responding to this year's survey are still seeing these white fibrous clots. They're seeing them in an average of about 20% of their corpses, marks, Mark, with some of the embalmers seeing these in up to 50% of their corpses. So this is not a, a rare thing. It's a prevalent issue with the embalmers. They've also seen another phenomenon called microclotting, which they describe as what looks like coffee grounds in the blood as they're draining off the corpse and they're, the blood off the corpse and trying to get the formaldehyde in. And that can be just as serious as these white fibrous clots. Uh, the microclotting occurs at the capillary level, your small blood vessels, and it can block the exchange of oxygen into the lungs and then the carrying of that oxygen to all the major organs of the body, you know, including the brain, your eyes, everything. And they're seeing that phenomenon in one-fourth of their corpses mm. on average, with some of them seeing them again in up to 50% or more of their corpses. So I've sent the results in the survey that I had completed back on the 8th of January again this year to the FDA, CDC, and NIH. But don't hold your breath, Mark. Yeah. I don't think they're going to do anything with the information. And just to be clear, one of the questions you asked uh, the uh, the embalmers is, had you ever seen this before the uh, the timing of the vax? And uh, yeah, the uh, embalmers when they answered that they've never seen this phenomenon before the before the vaccines came out or the or COVID itself. Um, you can't find these clots in any medical textbook. You'll find what are called traditional grape jelly clots. They look like grape jelly, and they dissolve easily in your hands when you rub them, just like grape jelly would. They've also seen chicken fat clots. They're yellowish in color, smaller, and they tear very easily. Much, much different than these long, large, white fibrous clots that are tough, rubbery, elastic. So, You know, and I've been a personal injury lawyer for almost 40 years now, and we see a lot of people that in the past have died of pulmonary embolisms or, or uh, blood clots in their brain, but they're, they're distinct bits of, uh, of blood clot. They're not these, you know, I've seen, I've seen videos on, on both uh, from you and from other sources. These things look like, like calamari, look like dinner that are being pulled out of people's veins. Yeah, they're scary, and the embalmers are pretty, uh, uh, they believe very strongly that these white fibrous clots are forming before death because they're finding them in bodies that are only an hour or two old and still warm. Yeah, I, so, I, the body's only been deceased. And there's no way they could have formed in just a couple hours since the person was deceased. They've also found them in living persons as well. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. I saw a video here recently um, of a uh, one of these big white fibrous clots being pulled out of a person's juggler vein. I'm thinking, you know, if that's happening, if they're finding that at death, that didn't start five minutes ago. That's been building for some period of time. I understand you, you're now aware of, uh, of some uh, information that, that uh, people are finding these in the living human beings. Correct. Um, and this kind of brings me to what you and Tim were talking about in the last segment. You know, I feel so bad for the January 6th prisoners and the fact that nobody really stepped up for them and went to bat for them. And that I think there's a, a real epidemic of cowardice in this country, Mark, when it comes to every issue across the board. When, you know, parents don't want to seem to go to school board meetings and fight for the rights of their children not to wear masks or not to be indoctrinated with LGBTQ, uh, you know, grooming. Uh, we've also uh, seen um, in this COVID space that I'm talking about the uh, difficulty of embalmers and people in the medical community to step forward that are seeing this phenomenon. Yeah. When I took, did my survey, I uh, this latest one, I sent it out to the world on the 8th of December. I sent it to 50 uh, national, regional, and state funeral director associations around the world, each with hundreds of members under them funeral directors and embalmers. I also used a bottom-up approach. I sent it to over 1,700 funeral homes around the world directly 
with the link to the survey monkey survey, you know, to try to maximize the results. Well, after I started my survey on the 8th of December, about five days later on the 13th, I only had about 14 responses in my SurveyMonkey collectors. So I got on the phone and I called the 50, actually the 30 U.S. state uh, funeral director associations that I had sent the survey to. And I talked to either their president or their secretary or somebody else in their office. And I asked them, hey, could you please forward that email I sent you last week with a link to the survey down to your active embalmers so they can take my survey? Well, Mark, God bless the Pennsylvania Funeral Directors Association. They did exactly as I asked. Mm. I know that because I got the next day and I checked my survey monkey collectors and I had 93 responses from embalmers and they were all from one state, Pennsylvania. Mm. And then I got up the next day after that and I had 32 more responses from embalmers and they were all from Pennsylvania again. So in two days, I got 125 responses from embalmers in just one U.S. state. And that told me two things. It told me, first of all, that the embalmers are willing to tell you what they're seeing in the embalming room if if they think they have the permission of their funeral director boss or their state funeral director association president. But remember, I also sent that to 29 other U.S. state you know, funeral director associations. I didn't get any responses. Yeah. They must have you know, deleted the email, suppressed it, not even sent it down to their active embalmers to take. So it shows me there's this, this big suppression, this big uh, cowardice that's going on you know, in, in the funeral industry, the same as we've seen in the medical industry, doctors not coming out and saying what they're seeing with patients and, and you know, and, and trying to gaslight them if they have a vaccine injury and saying, hey, it's 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 due to something else, anything but the vaccine. The vaccine didn't cause it. Yeah. So, well, I, I like one I saw the other day where the uh, some Canadian doctors admitted that the vaccine was responsible for the paralysis of a woman. But they said, it's OK, we'll euthanize you to make up for it. <laughs> yeah, no, brother. Uh, yeah, Canada's, they have that MAID program up there where they're just, they seem very anxious to uh, to help you uh, commit suicide if you wish to. Uh, well, you know, Tom, <laughs> you're talking about cowardice, but I mean, people have their families to feed and their kids to worry about. And when you think about what happened to the January Sixers, and by the way, they're still getting arrested every day, including uh, uh, Steve Baker, who just got, he works for, for Glenn Beck, just got arrested today, uh, three years after the fact. I mean, they're, they're hauling people in left and right. And then they're giving them, as you heard from, from Tim Hale and from the other folks we've had on the show, this horrendous, inhumane treatment. And people, the reason why that's happening, the reason why they, they provoke this January 6th, quote, insurrection, unquote, um, is to terrify the American public, to make everybody so afraid of standing up that they're not willing to do it because nothing, they, they're, they're thinking about, I've got a nice, comfortable life. My, my kids are fed. I've got a BMW in the driveway, um, or at least I've got a pickup truck. And if I open my mouth, if I raise my head up, they're going to make my life miserable. They're going to destroy my career. They're going to they're going to break me financially. They're going to break me physically, and they're going to throw me in a hole and throw away the key. So it it, it takes strong people to stand up and be willing to risk everything to take a stand. And by the way, the last time you were on this show, my whole station got banned from YouTube for two weeks, and that's how you know you're telling the truth. Okay. You know, Mark, you couldn't be more correct. It does take courage. And and then you can look yourself in the mirror every day, too. You know, I know guys like Tim, they were beaten down and they were uh, abused while they were in prison. But they still, I think, kept their integrity, their dignity. From what I understand, they actually sang the national anthem every night at 9 o'clock. Oh, the love of this country. I, I know you were at CPAC last weekend. Were you in the room when uh, when President Trump spoke? I was in the room when Tri- President Trump spoke, yes. Before he got on stage, they played that, that uh, um, recording 
of the J6ers singing the national anthem in solitary confinement, all these guys singing it, it just, it, I'm just even talking about it now, I've got chills running up down my spine. These, these people, these patriots down there in the hole being abused like Tim Hale, being abused like Derek Evans or, or Ryan Zink or any of these other folks, and they're singing the national anthem. And their punishment for being patriots is being treated like terrorists and being tortured by the American government. You know, I just, it's just hard to imagine this is going on in the United States of America. It is. You know, you look back at your Bible, though, you see a lot of the apostles. I mean, they, they suffered the same fate, too. By following Jesus, they were, you know, punished and rebuked and suffered uh, greatly yeah, for, yeah. For, for, for doing what was right. Yeah. So I love those kind of patriots like Tim, who, you know, stayed strong despite everything that's been done to him. Who still loves his country. These January Sixers are being persecuted and tortured most of the time, not for anything they actually did in the Capitol, but for what they had posted on Facebook or Twitter before and after for their political opinions. And they're actually, and as you know this darn well, that part of their sentence enhancement is getting them to admit during trial that they voted for Donald Trump or that they were Republicans. This is pure political persecution, just like in the Soviet Union, just like in Red China. You know, Eric Metaxas talks in his book about uh, Bonhoeffer and also, I think, in a uh, letter to an American church about the dangers of, the, of those of us who are, are complacent in not speaking out when we see atrocities happening, happening. We need to speak out. We need to make it very clear when atrocities are happening, because if we start to go silent, that's when the atrocities get worse. And then so, you got to then you got to look at our, our, you know, pardon my language for for trying to call them our elected representatives because most of them aren't elected. They're appointed by the party structure, and they sure as heck don't represent us because where, when all these outrages are happening, where are 49 United States Republican senators? Where are the majority of people in the House of Representatives? Why aren't they standing on the Capitol steps screaming that we cannot have political prisoners in the United States of America? We cannot torture Americans just because of their political opinions. And I don't care what your political opinions are. You got a right to say them. You got a right to express them. And the government cannot constitutionally punish you for your thoughts and your words, but only for your deeds. But it's the thoughts and words that are getting these people years and sometimes decades in prison for doing no more than walking through the Capitol building, but having the wrong political opinion. Amen, Mark. <clears throat> and I encourage everybody to go back and reread George Orwell's 1984, because it's happening right now. And if people can see that and draw that, that same parallel, uh, parallel from the book, they'll understand what's happening, and then maybe we have a chance to stop it. And read Solzhenitsyn's The uh, Gulag Archipelago. It's, it's just, uh, you, you read that, and you see it happening in the United States right now. And he was saying, you know, that when they haul your neighbor out of the apartment at three o'clock in the morning, you know, you'd say, gee, I guess he really was a bad guy, even though you know in your heart of hearts, he was a perfect patriot and they were just screwing with him. Well, I got to let you go, Tom. We'll have you back on the program, hopefully next time with a new whistleblower and we can uh, shed some new light on this topic. I sure appreciate you being on the program. Thanks, Mark, for having me. My, my pleasure. Take care. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's Tom Haviland, a uh, true American patriot, a guy that gave up his career in the, in the Air Force for the purposes, or a contract to the Air Force, for the purposes of being true to his, to his, uh, his heart, true to his God, and true to the American people. Well, we'll be right back in a minute with uh, my review of the week. 
fighting against totalitarianism. You're listening to Mark McCloskey on Fire. For podcast articles and more, find us on NewstalkSTL.com. Mark McCloskey on Fire. This is Mark McCloskey on Fire. Well, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark McCloskey, Mark McCloskey on Fire. Well, you know, if it's not hypocrisy, the mainstream media is not opening its mouths, right? If it's not complete BS, then you didn't hear it on television, you didn't see it on the web. But my favorite thing is, what does the left always scream about? The people that promote communism, the people that want to seek a single world socialist government, what do they always talk about? They talk about democracy, that they are the champions of democracy. And by God, but for the the mainstream media and the deep state, the evils of uh, MAGA Republicans would would strike our democracy in the heart, and we'd live in a in a fascist dictatorship in the rest of our lives. In fact, um, I heard a commentator this week say that if the Supreme Court rules against Donald Trump on his immunity theory, meaning that he's not immune from uh, charges even after he leaves the presidency, that that means that Donald Trump will never leave the presidency, that once he gets reelected, since he'd be afraid of going to jail if he was ever to not be president anymore, that he would never leave the presidency. So in the year, oh, I don't know, 2525, we'll still have the 300-year-old Donald Trump as president because he's never going to leave the presidency. But the best part of all this is everybody on the left was just going hysterical this week about the Supreme Court Taking, the, uh, taking up the issue of whether or not states can bar Donald Trump from the ballot and whether or not Trump has immunity and whether or not Trump's going to go to trial and get convicted of something before the election because there's nothing the left wants more than to have Trump convicted of some crime and die in prison under the extreme circumstances that they'll subject him to to get even for the audacity to win an election against a deep state. And then everybody who's up in arms this week, just aghast on the left, that the Supreme Court might, A, rule that states can't take Donald Trump off the ballot, and B, might take a while to decide on the immunity issue so that that won't come to a head before, before the election. And so they might actually have to have an election. They might actually have to have the, the people vote on whether or not they want Donald Trump as president. And by God, allowing the people to vote for Donald Trump will destroy democracy because we can't have people voting in a democracy. We can't have people making their own minds up in a democracy. We can't let them choose their candidates in a democracy because democracy, in the astute words of Dick Cheney, isn't a process, it's an outcome. To the deep state, to the neocons, to those people that want to create a single world socialist government the people are only allowed to vote for who the government wants you to vote for. The people are only allowed to vote for who the entrenched powers that be want you to vote for. And in a very real sense, the only people that are allowed to run in elections are those people who have been preordained. Sure, you'll see a list of candidates for a given office. There'll be 8, 9, 10, or in my case when I was running for U.S. Senate, 21 candidates for the position, but in the real world, Who's going to get elected has been decided before the filing period ever begins because that's where the big money goes, that's where the influence goes, and that's who's going to get elected, and that's where the future will be because those are the people that can be controlled 
the people who want the money and the power more than they want to serve the American people. And so that's the real power structure in America. But you know what's a real threat in America? White people. White rural rage, the threat to American democracy. And Tom, we'll start with you. Uh, why are white rural voters a threat to democracy at this point? You would think, as we pointed out, looking at Joe Biden's background and Donald Trump's, that, that the opposite would be true. I mean, we lay out the fourfold interconnected threat that white rural voters pose to the country. First of all, and we show 30 polls and national studies to demonstrate this. We provide the receipts in Chapter 6. They're the most racist xenophobic, anti-immigrant, anti-gay geodemographic group in the country. Second, they're the most conspiracist group. QAnon support and subscribers, election denialism, COVID denialism and scientific skepticism, Obama birtherism. Third, anti-democratic sentiments. They don't believe in an independent press, free speech. They're most likely to say the president should be able to act unilaterally without any checks from Congress or the courts or the bureaucracy. They're also the most strongly white nationalist and white Christian nationalist. And fourth, they are most likely to excuse or justify violence as an acceptable alternative to peaceful public discourse. White people that live in the country, white people that wear plaid shirts, wear tactical glasses, have uh, gimme cats, hats, gimme caps, and drive pickup trucks because we're told that white rural rage is the greatest threat to American democracy. And I was watching this on MSNBC, and they're talking about these, these talking heads, these authors. They wrote this book called White Rural Rage, The uh, Threat to American Democracy. Because we're told that white people that live in the country are the most racist, xenophobic, anti-immigrant, anti-gay, conspiracist, Obama birther, election denial, COVID denial, science skeptic, uh, QAnon supporters. Well... Gee, I guess I need to move out in the country. I'm missing that. Um, But can you imagine that if you replace the word white with any other race, with black, with brown, with yellow, with anything, can you imagine if any person in any mainstream media stood up and said that white rural rage is the greatest threat to American democracy, how long would that person stay in the air? That person would be fired before his microphone got uh, demisted from his breath. And yet, this is exactly what we're being told every day by the same talking heads, by the same deep state, state media that will tell you that this concept of replacement theory is a conspiracy theory, that the left isn't really engaged in trying to undermine Western civilization by bringing in a lot of non-Western, non-white people to take over the electorate because, after all, they're not really in favor of non-white people being in charge because they're not really saying that white people are bad and anything other than white people are good. No, wait a second. It's exactly what they're saying. White rural rage, the threat to American democracy, that white people living in the country are the most racist, xenophobic, anti-immigrant, anti-gay, conspiracy-oriented, Obama birther, election denial, COVID denial, science skeptics. Wait a second. Haven't all those conspiracy theories now proven to be uh, conspiracy realism? That these things, yesterday's conspiracy theory, is now the accepted truth, like COVID, like the vaccine that doesn't prevent COVID, doesn't prevent you from transmitting COVID, but does pose a real risk to your life. So I guess maybe uh, maybe those, those white rural ragers have a point. 
Then think about this. Young lady's out taking a jog. Uh, Lakin Riley. Say her name, Lakin Riley. Say her name along with another girl, Ashley Babbitt. All right? These are people that have been essentially murdered by the left. You've got Lakin Riley's killed by an illegal alien. I'm sorry. We can't call them illegal aliens anymore. The euphemism was uh, undocumented person. Wait, no. Undocumented person is racist now. We call them newcomers, okay? They're now newcomers. And by the way, when Joe Biden was down at uh, um, Brownsville, Texas, a place where there is no immigration problem because the uh, the border's been fixed there, um, he uh, never mentioned Lakin Riley's name. He hasn't called Lakin Riley's family. He hasn't acknowledged the fact that he is personally responsible for the death of Lakin Riley because of reversing all of Donald Trump's immigration uh, uh, efforts, which closed the border and would have prevented a criminal like the one that killed Lake and Riley from being in the country. But Joe Biden can't acknowledge that because he goes down there and he says these words, that the super MAGA Republicans, that the Republicans, that Donald Trump is responsible for the border crisis, that Donald Trump and the Republicans refused to participate in passing the strongest anti-immigrant, strongest border security bill in the history of the nation, which is this bill that's being promoted by the Democrat-controlled Senate, which would allow 5,000 illegal aliens into the country every day, and that's not a crime, okay? Why don't we, why don't we pass a law that says I can knock over 5,000 7-Elevens a day? And that's not a crime. Or I can go out and assault 5,000 people on the street a day, and that's not a crime. And only when I beat up the 5,001st little old lady will they consider it a crime. That's the, the greatest uh, border security bill in the history of the country. And by the way, you know, we have to, in order to make our borders safe, we have to send $60 billion to Ukraine to try to promote more war against those evil Russians, 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 Russians. Well, you know, it's probably not a very good thing that Alexei Navalny died in a Russian prison camp north of the Arctic Circle. I'm sure it's not much fun working up there in Siberia. The uh, Siberian internal exile has been a part of Russian culture since way before the Soviet Union, but it's a pretty miserable place. Read Solzhenitsyn, and you'll find out what a miserable place it is. But it's uh, um, when Solzhenitsyn was in the gulag up in Siberia, what was he doing? He was building a power station. He was working outdoors. They actually fed them in the out-of-doors. Sure, they had to do manual labor. They actually took pride in the quality of their work, quality of their workmanship, even though they were doing slave labor. We don't allow our political prisoners out. They're in a five-by-five cell, 23 hours a day, being fed schlop. In the case of Ryan Zink, being fed poison schlop um, and uh, being tortured, being beaten, uh, not getting health care, not getting religious services, and then we're going to point our fingers at those evil Russians and say, why can't they be as good as us? Why can't they be as good as Vladimir Zelensky, who has postponed and canceled the elections, put his political opposition in prison, nationalized the media so that there's only one national media, um, uh, basically turned his country into no different than Castro's Cuba, Stalin's Russia. But this, this is a paragon of democracy whose borders we have to defend against those evil Russians, no matter what the cost, even while leaving our borders completely open. 
So I ramble around. But just like Donald Trump at CPAC, I'll eventually come back to this story. And the story is this, that we're in a crisis situation in this country. Our government is imprisoning people right now openly for just their political opinions. Every single January 6th I've talked to has said that a major part of their persecution has been trying to get them to admit that they voted for Donald Trump, admit they're Republicans, admit that they, uh, that they approved of what was going on in January 6th. That's prominently featured in uh, Tim Hale's uh, judgment against him. Today, or this week, uh, a uh, reporter for The Blaze works for Glenn Beck, a guy named uh, uh, Steve Baker. Here's his face. He gets arrested for being there on January 6th, for going through the Capitol and reporting on it. They don't accuse him of breaking anything. They don't accuse him of stealing anything. They don't even accuse him of, of entering anything illegally just that he happened to be in a place which was a restricted area. But what they do do, there's a 13-page 13 13-page 13 affidavit for of his indictment. And what do they talk about? They talk about what he wrote about it afterwards. They talk about how he uh, um, talked about being 100% in favor of what happened that day. They talk about him posting on his Facebook page pictures of himself and saying, yeah, I was there. Talking about, after the fact, how he got to Nancy Pelosi's office after there were 40 or 50 people in there already, and they had engaged in some destruction, which he did not take part in. Nobody alleged he did, but he watched other people doing it. But they also posted in this, uh, in this article, and I'm going to pop up the pictures here, pictures of him entering a corridor and then a picture of him in the next one. It says, um, footage, Baker is circled in yellow, and he's standing in the gallery. I can count in this picture at least 22 policemen. Some of them are, are state police. Some are capital police. There is, he's, he's standing there, and it says, um, USCP, CCTV footage, Baker is circled in yellow. Well, look who's immediately to his right. A uniformed Capitol Police officer. Look to that man's right. More Capitol Police officers. Look in the distance. A whole corridor of policemen. Some of them in riot gear. Most of them in street clothes. There's a guy on his cell phone immediately to his right. This is not a riot. If he was doing anything wrong, do you think maybe the cops in the Capitol might have asked him to stop? Do you think he might have stopped if they'd asked him to stop? Do you think that all those cops there that are just letting people walk in and out... um, were upset by what they were watching? No. The people that were upset by what they are watching are the power brokers, the people that are afraid that they were losing their absolute control over the American public, the people who have now decided that the only way to maintain that control, to regain that control over the, over the population of the United States, to make sure that democracy never rises its ugly head again and inadvertently allows somebody like Donald Trump to get in who's an outsider, the only way can, they can do that is two things. One is censor everything we hear and say, and the other is to frighten us out of saying anything bad about it. To control the media to control the internet, to censor everything. And then if you're smart enough to get past the censorship, if you, if you can see the truth behind the shadows, if you're willing to raise your head up, by God, we'll destroy you. And we will not arrest everybody all at once. We'll arrest people here and there, drag them out of their airplanes in chains like Peter Navarro, 74-year-old gentleman 
director of uh, the Office of Trade for President Trump, who gets dragged off an airplane in chains when he would have gladly turned himself in had they asked. And now he's going to go to prison. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we saw Peter Navarro at CPAC, and my wife and I had an opportunity to talk to him in the green room before he went on stage. And he looked like he, like he was showing every bit of the signs of his persecution. He was drawn. He was looked like he was despondent. He was wearing clothes like he just stepped out of a homeless shelter. And then he gets up on stage. And he was the image of defiance, of, uh, of the resistance. And he looked directly at me and he said, this is going to be the most important six minutes you're ever going to hear in your life. And then he basically said, look, if they can do this to me, if they can put me in prison, if they can devote the full weight of the federal government to punish me for doing nothing more than my constitutional duty. What was his crime? Alleged uh, contempt of Congress for not honoring a January 6th committee subpoena to testify about the confidential conversations he had with the President of the United States. No one in his position had ever been charged with a crime like that before. No one has ever been compelled to testify about private conversations that he had as a White House official. This is oppression. This is tyranny. This is the Soviet Union. We cannot tolerate it. We must stand up against it and say, we will not be sheep. We'll be a free people, and we will resist. This is Mark McCloskey on Fire. For podcasts, articles, and more, find us on NewstalkSTL.com.